So good to be with you tonight. We're recording this in North Lakes on Saturday night. Some of you will watch this at a later time and we just welcome you online. Welcome if you're in the room. It's so good to spend this time with you. I want to share a message this evening called Lord Reorientate Me. Lord Reorientate Me. If you've got a Bible, jump into Matthew chapter 11. If you haven't, you've got an electronic device in the Version app, you'll find all the notes to the message uh, this weekend. Lord Reorientate Me. We're going to journey through the struggle of the human struggle, that is, of John the Baptist. He's got this conflict going on in his life journey and it's his conflict, but at some point it will become our conflict. You'll think you'll recognise your own tendency and trends in your own life as we explore his life. It's when um, confusion rages, when we thought God was going to act in a certain way, but he doesn't come through in the way we expected he would. This happens to John. It'll happen to you as you walk on in your journey. And we have a choice. Uh, will we focus on what's happening to me? Or will I stay focused on the goodness of God and let him take me to deeper places? And here's the big idea. Life is less about what is happening to me and more about what is happening in me. Now, the astute among you will go, John, that sounds a little bit familiar. Didn't you say that like six months back? Yes, I did. And if Axis continues to vote me in as their pastor, I'll be saying it in six months' time and I'll be saying it again in six months' time after that because I just feel like this is such a key life principle that we need to be reminded of over and over again. Life is less about what's happening to me and life is far more about the story I'm telling myself, the internal narrative that's going on up here as I travel through an experience. It's not so much about the external factors, it's about the internal heart processing that's going on in me as I process what is happening to me. Jesus said it like this, the rains and the winds and the floods come against all people. They do. The external factors come down against us. Everybody will face rains, winds and floods. People of faith, people of zero faith, young, old, male, female, rich, poor, black and white will all face the storms of life, believers and atheists alike. The difference isn't the external factors. The difference is what we do with them, the story we tell ourselves as we travel through them. See, the storms of life to some degree just tell a story of what my foundation is when they hit my life. If I hold firm in the storms of life, it shows that my foundation is built on Christ. Now, I suppose you haven't just heard this as a biblical parable from Jesus. I suppose you've seen this play out in real life before your eyes. You've seen two people, let's call them Kim and Kerry, travel down this road And unexpected circumstances of life happen to these two people, devastating things, unexpected loss of family members or a tragic accident that left them with debilitating injuries or uh, just a sudden turn of events that, that can only be described as tragic. But have you noticed how even though these two ladies who you know in your circle are traveling down the same road of life, one of them kind of draws closer to God through that experience, and one of them finds that experience um, catapult them away from God and turn them bitter. How does that work? If they were travelling down the same road, how come 
one of them used that experience and drew it on it to, to, to propel them even closer to God, and the other used that experience and it turned them bitter and sour and twisted and away from God. How does that work? Well, even though they were travelling the same road, they were travelling it very differently, yeah? And it's what was going on up here. It was the thinking choices they made, the story they told themselves. It doesn't mean that the person who responded well was living in denial. The trial still hurts, but they use that trial to propel them towards God. It's not only what happens to us, it's what happens in us. And this ought to be an encouragement for us all because actually we don't have much control over what happens to us. We have some control, but we don't have total control. If we've learned anything in the last 18 months, we've learned we don't have control over the external circumstances. We have some control if we drive carefully, staying under the speed limit, we're less likely to have an accident. If we eat well and exercise, there's less likely chance of a heart attack. If we live within our means, there's less chance of being bankrupt. We have some control. Our decisions can either feed tragedy or feed success, but we don't have full control. Sometimes life happens to us despite our choices being good. And the headspace, though, that I adopt makes me a victim or a victor. Matthew chapter 11, we pick up this story of John the Baptist midstream in his life. Let's read. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, go back and tell John what you've heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him, that is John, to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? This is Jesus now describing the, the ministry of John the Baptist, all that he's been involved in. Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? Now, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he is more than a prophet. John is a man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before me. I tell you the truth. Of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. What a smoking compliment to get. There's no greater human being ever lives than John the Baptist. But we're going to see in a moment he's hit the rocks. Let's pray. Lord, give us grace as we read, as we understand, as we contemplate what it means to live in the light of confusing circumstances. I pray grace over these people that would hear this word today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. John the Baptist has understandably hit the walls because he's in lockup. 
He's in prison here, we discover. And prison then is not like prison now. We're not talking colour TVs and air conditioning. We're talking about suffering. And so he's really feeling it. And he's reading the play pretty well. Here in Matthew chapter 11, um, we see that, yes, he's suffering and, yes, he's concerned. By Matthew chapter 14, his head is in a basket. So to say that he's reading the play well and he's kind of a little bit anxious about all that's going on is probably fair. His situation is bleak. He's in a predicament. And you and I would be feeling the same. Now, the particular thing I want you to be aware of, if you weren't already, is the question he asks, though, in verse 3. He sends off a bunch of mates to check out the identity of Jesus. And he asks this, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting, or should we look elsewhere? Should we keep looking somewhere else? Should I look elsewhere for rescue, or are you it, Jesus? You can read between the lines, can't you, as he's essentially on death row and thinking about dying soon. He wants to make sure he's, he's climbing the right tree. He wants to make sure his ducks are lined up. He, he's saying, before I leave this planet and graduate into life thereafter, Am I on the right person? Are you truly the Messiah? Because I can see the end in sight. And if you, as you think about that question, you probably think it's fair and you should be asking the same question if you are faced with the end of life. Am I believing in the right thing? I have, in a sense, no trouble that John's asking questions, but that he's asking this question is quite surprising. See, there's many questions John could be asking right at this point that needed answering like, Jesus, are you going to help me? Because if you don't, I think I'm going to die pretty soon. Like, that's a fair question. But I want to show you why the identity question wasn't fair, wasn't relevant, wasn't really a question in John's mind. And I want to establish how he arrived here through this lens this weekend of orientation disorientation, reorientation, because that's how life comes to us. We orientate it, then we get disorientated, and then we need to be reorientated. That's how life rolls. It's a cycle that we seem to go around in life as we grow and move closer to God. Orientation is this stage of life where everything seems perfect. You have life worked out. Uh, there's, there's, then there's disorientation where we begin to adjust to a... Sorry, where life makes no sense and God is confusing. And then there's reorientation when we begin to adjust. But it's a new normal. It's not just back to where we once were. It's actually a new normal altogether. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. In reorientation, God is still involved in our lives, but in a mysterious way, not like we first thought he would. And discerning his ways is anything but straightforward. He calls us forward, but we just find that he works in a different way to what we first expected he would. This is John's story, and I'd be surprised by the end of this talk if you don't say this, oh, that's my story too. There's areas of life where I can see that playing out. And if you have this advantage where you're young enough to know this hasn't happened to you yet, then bank this wisdom because it's coming pretty soon. Let's start. Orientation. It's the time where we first meet Jesus, where we first come to faith and we enter into this honeymoon period where life is wonderful. It's like anything when it's new and fresh to us. We're on a high 
and this is orientation. It represents this predominant thought that I am so happy to have God in my life as we discover faith for the first time. We only see positives to life, faith and God. Everything is hunky-dory. I'm on top of the world. Everything makes perfect sense. Coming to Christ is like somebody has turned the lights on. The darkness has been cast out of my life and I begin to see things for the first time. It's so transformative. Everything is bright and wonderful. My prayers get answered. God seems to be at my beck and call. One plus one always equals two. There's just a a formula going on, which is I call, God answers, everything turns out right. This is orientation. And it's a formula we've got working with God where I don't suffer, I don't um, have any hardship because God is my protector, God is my provider. This is kind of the honeymoon stage of what it comes, you know, how faith comes to us in those early stages. This is orientation. And at this point in time, we can't work out why everyone wouldn't be following God. And why wouldn't they want a saviour? Why wouldn't they want a friend? Why aren't they coming on this journey too? We think our faith is so strong. We'll later learn that it's actually shallow. But this is a point of orientation. It's a faith untested. It's a faith that knows all the answers. It's a faith that's black and white. Everything's certain. There's no mystery. Just believe and God fixes everything. John the Baptist has actually spent time in this state. Previous to this first point, we check in on him here. There's days where for him everything made sense. Earlier in Matthew, we get a glimpse of these better days. It's when Jesus and John were close partners and things are tremendous. John's doing his utmost to promote the ministry of Jesus and there's undeniable manifestations of who Jesus is. A few pages earlier in Matthew, we see this playing out. John did have a clear picture who Jesus was. Matthew 3, it says this, when Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptised by John, John tried to talk him out of it. He said, I'm the one who needs to be baptised by you. John recognised who Jesus was. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said in 15, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptise him. After his baptism, Jesus come up out of the water and the heavens are open and the spirit of God descends like a dove and settles on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. This is earlier in the same book, her earlier experience of John the Baptist. It must have been an incredible experience to be a part of. You imagine your hands being the ones that baptise the living Christ. Imagine being part of that. Imagine hearing that heavenly voice as he comes up out of the water. Imagine seeing the spirit descend like a dove and landing on Christ. John the Baptist has this privilege. He's there. He's a a star player in this story. This is before he had wind up in prison. In this moment of absolute awe, John, if he had any questions previously, they all washed away now in the waters of baptism. But we know He already knew even before this. We can go back in the story and find further evidence that John already knew who Jesus was. The first time he sees him, the Gospel of John records, John says, he screams out when he sees Jesus coming from a distance, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the first recorded thing John says about him. But we go back even further than that. 
and we can find that John has history with Jesus. You say, John, how far back can we go? How's pre-birth sounds? See, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, finds out she's impregnated by the Holy Spirit, this is a supernatural event. And she's unmarried, so she knows she'll be the talk of the town. So she scurries off to her safe place, which happens to be her cousin Elizabeth. Now, this wouldn't have been a quick journey. We understand it's some 130 kilometres. She went, and in those days, you didn't hop in a car. You travelled by foot. So this is a long journey. Mary makes to her cousin Elizabeth her safe place where she's going to go and pour out her heart after she's heard about this pregnancy by the Holy Spirit. If anyone will understand it, it's Elizabeth, her safe person. So she gets in the door after this long journey and before she can hardly say hello, Elizabeth has to sit down. She's like, oh, let me take a seat because this baby in here is going crazy. Who was the baby in there? It was John the Baptist. Now, in some profound way, he has this connection with the Christ, even in the womb. Now, this is a connection we can't really understand or explain, but only to know from way back then, John recognised the Christ. John recognised who Jesus was. He knew the full identity of Christ. If anybody knew, it was John the Baptist. So how is it that he's suddenly confused about who Jesus was? How is it his faith and theology and comprehension of Christ has all of a sudden got muddled, gone from order to disorder, from clarity to confusion? from, in our words this weekend, orientation to disorientation. Well, this is where we start saying in this disorientated stage, as we move to the next point, God is not working out the way I thought he would. God is not working out the way I thought he would, not even close. And John is having this moment, and you and I have had them, and if you haven't had one yet, you'll have one where your faith reaches a crossroads. It's a crisis of belief. And you thought God would have shown up by now, but he hasn't. What do we do with that? The faith of yesterday, where everything was crystal clear and made so much sense, is now confusing. Yesterday we said, let me introduce you to my friend Jesus. He's amazing. He'll take away the sin of the world. And today we're wondering... If any of it's true, as we enter into this place of disorientation, our hands are no longer in the air in worship. They're more so down here in like (laughs) confusion, demanding, wondering what on earth's going on. Yesterday, God, I thought I understood you. Yesterday, God, I thought we had a connection going on. Yesterday, God, I thought I had a special place in your kingdom purposes. I knew my role. Yesterday I was screaming, behold the Lamb of God. Today I'm confused. Feels like I've lost everything. I'm not sure of anything anymore. Along with John, we get disorientated by the storms of life. And we can say probably with him, some of us, I have a lot of history. But it means not much right now. Not much right now. In these present set of circumstances, I don't know. 
I'm asking along with John in Matthew 11.3, should I be looking elsewhere? Because <laughs> I'm not so sure anymore. Should I be investing other alternatives right now? Because things aren't working out the way I thought they would work out. Disorientation hits us with a thud. For John, being disorientated meant being sent to prison and ultimately dying. Now, I hope for those of us this weekend, we're not talking about a death, but sometimes disorientation can be a death of sorts, a career that we had our hearts set on, a person that we thought we would be married to by now, or perhaps a a marriage, but you thought the children would be here by now, but there's problems with getting pregnant. Well, the kids have come, but it's complicated. There's special needs, there's health issues, there's unexpected twists and turns, and this illusion of just finding the right person and falling in love and living happily ever after isn't quite working out the way you thought it would. Everything that was true in these early stages of belief is now like a million miles away. The initial slogan I went with that I'm happy to have God in my life because he's made the world of difference is now kind of all lost. And the positives that I used to see in this stage of disorientation, the positives I used to feel about life and God and faith are all kind of way back there. Things have turned sour and everything has gone grey and dreary. My prayer life's plummeted. I wonder if it's any worth talking to God. He doesn't seem to take any notice anyway. He seems to enjoy just sitting back and watching me suffer. I wonder why he hasn't rescued me yet. In fact, I wonder why he's let this scenario happen in the first place. If he really is an almighty, why the almighty mess? This is a state of disorientation and I can't work God out. I think my faith is pretty much over. I'll actually later discover it's just being stretched. I thought it was strong, but it was actually shallow. I thought it was over, but it's just being stretched. This is a state of disorientation and my faith will not only survive, it will come forward as gold if I hold on to Christ through it. I know someone is here today, someone is watching online saying, John, I don't like the way this is unfolding. I mean, I think the reason John the Baptist has wound up in this depressed state is through his own choices. I mean, he's probably just a man of little faith. And the reason he's suffering, the reason he's so down and out is because he has weak faith. He's a baby believer. I mean, I'm not criticising. I'm just stating the facts. Well, let's consider the facts. Let's fact check what Jesus said of him. Matthew 11, 11. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. I tell you the truth, Jesus says. Now, Jesus is the truth. So when the truth tells you I'm telling the truth, I think it is the truth. And Jesus says there's no human finer than this man. So I'm going to give John the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to say that it's not a lack of faith that's led him into this point of crisis. In fact, I'm backing him as a giant of the Christian movement if Jesus says this about him. 
He's the one chosen to baptise the living Christ. I don't think this is a man of small faith. I don't think he's suffering because of his own flawed action. I don't think he's disorientated because he's some bad guy. I think he's a good guy. So you say, well, if he's a good guy, why is he in prison? Well, there's a backstory there you'll have to chase down in your own time, chapter 14, but he's a, he's a good guy and he's in prison because he so courageously stood up for Christ. That's why he's there. That's why he ends up in prison. But even for a guy at the top of the tree, when it comes to faith, he has this profound moment of questioning. Jesus, are you really the Christ? Or should I look elsewhere? And this teaches me that questioning isn't necessarily a sign of weak faith. It's synonymous with growing faith, actually. The Bible's worship book is full of people questioning God. It's a normal operating mode of people of genuine faith. A genuine faith will go through peaks and troughs and ups and downs and highs and lows. This is what authentic faith is. But one thing authentic faith does is holds on, even when it's tough. Through those rips and storms and waves, and that person of authentic faith lets those things carry them back into the arms of the Saviour. And this is where John is ahead of many of us, because it's where he goes with his disorientation. It's where he goes with his questions and confusion. He takes it all back to the Saviour. He goes back to Jesus to clarify. If only I could make that my practice. When I'm confused, when I'm kind of feeling befuddled by life, that I would go back before him, not in a demanding way, but in an authentic way and in an honest way and say, Lord, I, I don't get it. Right now I don't get it. Am I on the right track? because I feel 100% disorientated right now. But we take our questions to him. That's what John the Baptist teaches us here. Spurgeon in learning, to put a positive spin on this process, says this, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Isn't that amazing? I have learned. I think that's a key word. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He learned it. We need to learn it. I need to learn it. You need to learn it. If we're going to survive the challenges of life, the times of disorientation won't be just disorientating, they'll be destructive if we don't let them carry us to the rock of ages, Christ himself. It's what enables us to walk through a crisis and not become a victim. It's me talking my way through saying, Joe, I know you're not feeling a thing, but God is still good and God is still in control and God is going to carry you through this. We preach our hearts. We don't listen to our hearts. We preach to our hearts. We tell ourselves the truth when we're in that valley of the shadow of death. We must rush to finish orientation, disorientation, reorientation. It's when I don't understand God, but I'll worship him anyway. I don't understand God what you're doing right now in this season, but I'm going to choose to surrender and bring my life before you anyway. 
regardless of how I feel. That is a mature, godly faith. My worship is not dependent on God being my puppet and obeying my signals. God isn't someone I can control. I don't always comprehend his actions. I don't always comprehend his non-actions. But I make a decision to bring my life under his surrender anyway and surrender to him. We have to move beyond the simple, orientated thinking of, I believe God because everything I touch turns to gold. And God's behind it. He just blesses me and he favours my life and he answers my every beck and call. He's affirmative in every single prayer that I bring to him. And I don't suffer any hardship because God is my protector and I'll keep up my end of the bargain as long as he keeps up his end of the bargain. That's kind of the thinking of a child. If we're going to move over here into maturity, we worship God just because. Why? Just because he is God. Well, what's he done for you to deserve it? Well, he's done plenty. But that's not why I worship. I worship just because he is God. And his goodness stands all by itself alone, independent of how I feel treated in any given moment. God is God and he is good. And this is beyond orientation. This is where a faith has matured. It's gone through the fire and come out the other side. That's mature faith. This, friends, is the Easter story, really. We've just gone through that last weekend where all of the Jews thought Jesus was going to act in a certain way. He was going to be one type of Messiah and it all got flipped on its head and they had to reorientate. And still today we're learning to reorientate, to actually get our heads into gospel thinking where things are not as they seem. And as we stay faithful and as we continue to sow in faithfulness, God will reward us in the end. But we worship because we worship, because he's worthy of worship. And that's the only reason that we need. We don't worship because he's treated me well lately. Lord, Reorientate me. Lord, help me be a worshipper no matter whether I comprehend what you're up to in any given moment or not. Lord, reorientate me. Take me deeper. This is the faith Jesus calls from John the Baptist. Did you see it? When Jesus responds to John, he doesn't give him any simple answers. Isn't it annoying? Isn't it annoying? John sends with this question and, I mean, the answer would be yes or no. But that's not what John gets. He gets a profound response, one that encourages a deeper faith. Don't just hover on the surface, John. Let your faith be stretched. And so we circle back to where we started, Matthew 11, 3. Are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus doesn't give a direct answer, see? Go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. Jesus, save your breath. Is it yes or no? I mean, why not just yes? 
go back and tell John, yep, you're on the right track. Why don't I just give him an emphatic yes? Your whole life you've been right, John, ever since the day you kicked in your mother's womb. John doesn't get a simplistic yes. He gets a response but not an answer. And I think this is the kind of faith God's calling us to, beyond just a simplistic yes or no answers. You say, Jono, is God a politician? He just ducks and weaves and doesn't give a straight answer. Perhaps. Perhaps. But there's something deeper at play, I think, here. God's inviting us to go on a journey with him. And it's a journey that goes beyond yes or no simple answers. It's a journey of relationship. It's a journey where we don't just go through looking for answers to solve riddles from event to event with, with God's answer book, the Bible, as it's sometimes been called. That's kind of a little bit narrow to only think of it as that. I, I need to look for clues to find to solve this riddle that's in front of me in God's answer book. Where can I find the next answer? No, it's far deeper than that. It's a relationship that God's inviting us into. And he says... Don't come to me as to look for the next one word answer to fill in the blank. Come to me in relationship. Bring to me your heart. Bring to me your hurt. Bring to me your confusion. And let's talk about it. And God won't insult you with one word, simple answers. He's not that dismissive. He knows that a magic word won't make all problems go away. God's offering something far more profound than that. He's offering himself. And he says, I'll go with you on this journey. My presence will carry you through. I'll travel this road with you. I'll reorientate you as we walk forward in faith together and keep this conversation alive. Don't strike me out when trouble hits your life. Don't think I've abandoned you. Jono, and everybody listening, talk your way through. Remind your heart of the goodness of God. Remind yourself that he's there with you no matter what. Tell yourself the truth. God is still good even when life doesn't feel like it. And as I invite you to stand for prayer in closing, I remind you, life is less about what is happening to us. And so often, more often, about what is happening in us. So would you stand for prayer as we close? I invite you in this quiet moment that we have, just to allow the Spirit of God to hover over your heart, to scan your heart and soul and mind, just reveal to you what is going on in me right now? What is that challenge and what story am I telling myself about it? Am I reminding myself of God's goodness, of God's closeness, of God's presence? Or am I being robbed of my joy by the enemy? Is he getting in and using this situation to speak lies over me that I've begun to embrace and they're robbing my life of joy? God is calling to us in these moments. He's not calling us just to give us a simple yes or no pat answer. He's calling us beyond black and white thinking, that point where we think we know it all, 
And he's calling us into a deeper relationship. And mystery won't all go away. The storms will ensure that. But the win is stay connected to your Father. Learn to kiss the wave that drives you to the rock of ages. And so, Lord, in these quiet moments, we bring our hearts afresh to you. And, Lord, we say we surrender. There's much we don't understand, but we surrender. We decide that we're going to trust you. Even though we can't see the end game here, we can't see three steps ahead, we may be struggling to see the next one. But God, we're just declaring that you are trustworthy, that you have proven yourself over and over and over again to be faithful. And so in these moments, we place our hand in your hand. We say, God, we don't know what's coming next, but we're holding on to you. Lord, reorientate me. Lord, tell my heart the truth. And help me trust you to move forward. In Jesus' name.